Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful today again that we can come together and to go into your word. We thank you for the Sunday school lesson. We pray now that you would give us more spiritual food today, that you would give us what we need to help us each day. We pray that this spiritual food that you give us, we would take it and apply it on our lives to be pleasing to you. We pray that there might be things that you remind us of that you've already taught us and then maybe something we haven't seen before. Father, we put it in your hands and pray for your will. We ask it in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. First um, John. My plans, Lord willing, is to do First John, is to go as far as we can till the time runs out. And then if Alan asks me to fill in again, we'll pick up where we left off. So First John, chapter 1. First John, chapter 1, and verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. I'll pause there a moment. You see the word beginning. It makes me think of Genesis 1, where it says, In beginning God created, and we had a lesson from Mark Summers on Sunday school with the Hebrew language about that. And then in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So keep that in mind. And that's who, of course, John here is talking about. So he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. So they specifically, physically heard him teach with their physical ears. Which we have seen with our eyes. So that's John saying those in that day, they saw Jesus, the word. Which we have looked upon and our hands have handled So they touched him. They were that close. And it says, of the word of life. So again, that reminds us of John chapter 1. Same writer, same John, the Apostle John, that wrote the Gospel of John. The word of life. Now he says parenthetically, for the life was manifested, that is revealed or shown, and we have seen it and bear witness And show to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So he says that parenthetically so that we understand. Now the scripture goes on from verse 1 then to verse 3. He says, that which we have seen, same thing as he's talking about the word in verse 1, the Son of God. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. Now, he's not writing to lost people. I just want, I know you know that already, but I want us to be reminded of that because a lot of people who study most of the word don't, uh, haven't figured out who it's talking to. This is to us as believers. So not lost people and telling them how to get saved, uh, that is spiritually saved. This is talking about to us as believers what we need to do to have life in the age that is uh, to rule and reign in the coming kingdom. So he says again in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that we, that ye, I'm sorry, uh, now verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that ye also may have fellowship with us. So notice the word fellowship here. So it's not talking about lost people getting saved, but he's talking about fellowship and the subject is 
talking about that. He said, with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. And the definite article is there is the Christ. Not to do a whole lesson on it, but you know Christ is not part of his name. It's the title. The word from uh, the Greek, Christe, um, so it means king is the best translation. It comes from, in the Old Testament, the anointed one, the Messiah, that was the one anointed to rule, to be king. So we have, as Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, that is the king. So is Jesus the king? Or sometimes, as we do in modern English, we put the title in front. So that would be King Jesus. So sometimes you'll see it in the Bible, Christ Jesus. But when it's Jesus, the definite article is always there, Jesus the Christ, which means Jesus the King. But notice it's the Father and the Son. A lot of the New Testament, when the writers are writing, in particular, they'll mention the Father and the Son. One thing to keep in mind is because the Jewish people who believed in the same Father we do as Christians, but didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. So they believed in the Father, but not the Son. So this is important. It's the Father and the Son, and that's emphasized a lot. So keep that in mind. There are other people who have other religions, and they believe in God, but not the Lord Jesus as the Christ or the Son of God. Maybe just they think of him as another prophet. If you know the whole religion of Islam, it's Jesus is just another prophet like Moses to them. But this is specifically the Father and his son, Jesus the Christ. Verse 4, And these things write we unto you, again, he's writing to believers, not lost people, so that's us, that your joy may be full. And I want to, we're going to stay in First John, but I want to show you just a couple scriptures that I'm sure you're familiar with about this joy. He wants us as believers to have this joy and not only have it, but it that might be full so there's a few other scriptures where this is mentioned. If you'll turn with me a moment to Matthew, just backing up into the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 25. And we won't do the whole parable of the talents. I know that would be a whole lesson in itself, and you're familiar with that, but I just want to point out at least one of the scriptures that mentions. Matthew chapter 25. We'll look at verse 21. Matthew 25. And verse 21. So just, did you remember the context? They're each um, given according, as, as it says in the beginning. Of course, I want to point out in verse 14, it says, For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is teaching. So that we understand, even though that's italicized, that means in the King James Version, it's italicized because the translators put it in that. But it's okay because it's at at chapter 25, verse 1. So the subject is still the same, the kingdom of heaven. This is not talking about getting to heaven. These parables are talking about ruling and reigning in the coming kingdom. So it's the kingdom of heaven. That's the subject. So of these three examples he gives, for those who receive, as it's called, talents here, according to their several, is the old English word, which means separate abilities, then they're accountable at the end as whether they used them or not. So in verse 21... His Lord, this is one of the ones who used what God gave them. His Lord said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. 
So there's that word joy. So we know it's connected to ruling and reigning in the coming kingdom, this joy. And John is writing, he's praying that as Christians, he's writing that our joy may be full. So it has to do with getting rewards and ruling and reigning. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and that's right after the chapter 11 where it gives examples of faith. Then Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll look at verse 2. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see this joy, the same joy that John's talking about, and we just read in the parable that Jesus taught of the talents, it was set before him, and he, went, he was faithful to the Father. So it says, he endured the cross, and despising the shame. Now he sat down at the right, as we see here, the right hand of the throne of God. Now to connect that, we'll look at Revelation chapter 3. Still keeping your place in First John, if you will. Revelation 3. Revelation chapter 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, we know there are letters to the seven churches. Revelation chapter 3. All right. And let's look in particular at, let's see, there's several examples, but... Okay, um, finding it quickly because I wrote down the wrong verse, but they're all the same. All right, verse 21. To him that overcomes, so this is again to us as believers, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. We just read in Hebrews that for the joy that was set in front of Jesus, he endured the cross. And is set down to the right hand of the Father. So here it says, to him, that is the Christian, who overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. So I just wanted to connect that all to this joy. So if you will, coming back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. So verse 4, he's writing that uh, us as believers, that our joy might be full. Verse 5. This, then, is the message that we have heard of him, that is from Jesus, and desire, or de- excuse me, declare unto you that God is light. So we're going to keep this in mind. We know in John he writes about the light of the world as well. And here he mentions the light as opposed to the darkness. So keep that in mind because he's going to talk about the difference between what Christians say and what is reality. You know, a lot of people use these scriptures to say, oh, there's people that say they're Christians. <laughs> That's not at all what this is about. I don't know why a lost person would claim to be a Christian anyway. That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> but there are Christians who claim to be in fellowship with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And their life is not indicating that at all. So they're carnal Christians, not spiritual. So here, keep that in mind. He says, so God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
So just in case we have any uh, ambiguity on the subject, he is a light. There is no darkness whatsoever in him. Verse 6. So then it says, if we Christians say that we have fellowship with him, that's God. Remember, I mentioned back in verse 3, he mentioned the fellowship. And he said, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about this fellowship. If we as Christians say we have fellowship with him and walk. All through the Bible, the word walk is talking about living. So if it says walks or walketh or walking, it's talking about our daily living in this life. Just to keep that, I know you know that already, but just a reminder. So if we walk... So again, in verse 6, sorry, and walk in darkness. So if we say we're fellowship and walk in darkness, it says we lie. That Christian is not telling the truth. It says, and do not the truth. They're not doing the truth. They're not doing what they say. If a Christian says they're in fellowship, but they're not living that, they're they're walking in darkness and they're lying. Verse 7, but if we say, this is the opposite, if we say we walk in, In the light, as he is in the light, this is what it says, we have fellowship one with another. So first it says that. Before it talks about our, if you want to call it vertical fellowship, that is between us and God. We talk about him being above. um, But in the sense of the horizontal, that's between with each of us as brothers and sisters in Christ. So first off, if we are walking in the light, the first thing he emphasizes is that we have fellowship one with another. Things are right. It doesn't mean everything goes smoothly, but we we do something to, to get it right. We don't go on, if we're a spiritual Christian and in fellowship with God, we can't do that if we're not right with each other. We have to be in fellowship with one another. It says, going on in verse 7, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. All right? So that means as believers... If we're in fellowship with him, it means we're applying First John 1, 9, which is coming up in a second, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So this is not the lost people confessing their sins to get saved. That's talking about Christians. I heard somebody a long time ago call it the Christian's bar of soap. It's, it's because we do sin daily. And so when we, the word confess means admit to. You first have to be convicted of something in order to admit to it. So it's sins that we're aware of that God has pointed out. And so we admit, we confess it. And then, as 1 John 1, 9 says, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But here it says that's what is the conclusion or automatically is happening if we're in fellowship with him. His blood then is cleansing us because we're confessing our sins. Let's just explain it in a little more detail in a moment. Now, verse 8. And by the way, it says, cleanses us from all sin. So we'll get to that in more emphasis, too. Verse 8. If we say, again, we're talking about Christians claiming something. If we say that we have no sin. Now, that may be a little confusing, but all of us have a sin nature. And there's always, Paul is good about this in all his letters, writing the two different sides. He does this all the time. It's from God's side looking down as we were just studying in Romans in Sunday school as Jerry was teaching. You know, he looks at it. We're dead to sin. We've been buried in Christ. So if we're, if we're dead to sin, how, could we, how would we be living then in sin? How would we do that? Well, it's because there's two sides to it. We still have a sin nature. Yes, Jesus died and that's buried 
The problem is we keep resurrecting that sin nature. It's there. It's real. So a Christian who claims they don't have the ability to sin or be displeasing to God, that's what it means that they have no sin. If a Christian says that, what does it say? It says we are deceiving ourselves. That Christian is deceiving themselves to think that. And the truth is not in us. So there are Christians who think that once they're saved, they don't have to worry about Satan. They don't have to worry about any temptations. That now they're saved, they're going to heaven. Yes, it's true they're going to heaven. But there's a whole lot of concern about, uh, as Christians, we need to be very concerned about Satan who walks about like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So that's very important. Satan is real. And his whole authority and all, all that are under him are very real. And we have real uh, temptations in our lives So we need to keep that in mind. So that Christian who thinks they don't have this sin nature is wrong. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, so that says we do sin, all right? When we do sin, if we confess them, he, still talking about the word, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we can count on him. He's not going to say, well, I changed my mind. I'm not going to forgive you. Because if that were the case, if there were something that we confessed and, we, and he wouldn't forgive us, we would remain out of his will, we would be out of fellowship, and we could not attain this joy that he's talking about to enter into the kingdom. He's not talking about heaven, but again, I emphasize that just in case there's somebody listening on the internet who, who says I'm saying there are works involved in getting to heaven. This is talking about Christians ruling and reigning. So if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's that mean? I think it's saying that there are also sins we're not aware of. You can't confess sins you don't know about. But when we confess the ones we have been convicted of, he not only forgives us of those sins, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that's beautiful. You know, I, I, there are times where maybe we've hurt somebody, we have no idea that happened. You know, and... And unless the person tells us, we may not know it. So, I mean, there are things that happen. So they're all included. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I've talked to Christians from other uh, belief systems, I call them, uh, where there are some churches, you may have heard of them, where they claim that once they're saved... They cannot sin. They, they don't have the ability to sin. There's no, you know, that they're, they're perfect. Salvation has made them perfect. And I think, oh, wow, that's a, how they could come up with that conclusion from the Bible, I'm not sure. Because then you'd have to take some of these scriptures out. Why would you need First John 1, 9 that we just read? Unless, of course, the people who take it out of context and think that's not, oh, you do that to get saved. And once you're saved, then you know. But that's not the subject. So anyway, moving on, chapter 2. My little children... And this is an endearment kind of thing. He's writing, John is writing to us as believers as, as, a, as someone who would care about young people. So it's an endearment kind of thing. These things write I to you that ye sin not. So, all right. So just as Jerry was teaching from Romans this morning in Sunday school, um, where it says, you know, where sin was, grace did much more abound. And so the conclusion, when it starts in chapter 6, says, oh, well, then should we just sin more? Because the more we sin, that would be more grace. And he said, God forbid. 
That isn't what Paul was saying. And so John is writing here. So it's not like, okay, some Christians say, okay, well, all my sins will be forgiven. I just admit it, so I'll go out and I'll sin, and then I'll confess it, and then I'll sin, and I'll confess it. But the object is to here to try not to sin. So there's the thing. And so it says, and if any man sin, if, in other words, if it happens, if we do, we have an advocate. That's like a, um, um, a word that lawyers would refer to as like a defense attorney. We have an advocate, someone who will stand for us, with the Father, and it says right here, that's Jesus, again, the definite article, the Christ, the righteous. So we have that, and that's comforting to know. Verse 2, and he is the propitiation. Now, that's an old word that we don't use much, but it's talking about the idea that he took our place, he died on the cross for us, so he is the propitiation for our sins. So that blood that was shed, not only as we talk about the sin nature, um, but we talk about our sins in our Christian lives. That blood is used to cleanse when he uses the word cleanse. In the Old Testament, it was atonement. But in the New Testament, it's completely washing away. So it's it, a totally different meaning. So it goes on to verse 2, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when he died, he died for all of those sins. Now, does that mean, as some churches teach, that then everybody's saved? Because some churches believe that. They call everybody the children of God in the sense that they're all believers. And, you know, it's like people that don't believe in hell. There's, they don't believe anybody's ever going to be there because they said, how could a loving God? You know, you probably heard all that. So, but it was for the whole world, but we have to, to get it applied, we have to believe. So to get to heaven, the simple answer, it's asked, the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do, it was asked of the Philippian jailer, or he was asking, what must I do to be saved? And the answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's how a person gets saved, believing. So that's how a person has will be in heaven is because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. The works are for us as Christians to enter the kingdom. So just to make that clear in verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now there's two words for know here and they're not the same in the Greek, but just to point that out um, in case you're not a person who looks at the Greek words. But the second one has the prefix epi in front of it. So um, it's, it's sort of like a deeper or fuller knowledge. But so hereby we do know that if we know him, if we keep our, that we, excuse me, know him if we keep his commandments. So in other words, as Christians, if we're obeying what the word tells us to do, if we're being obedient, then we have, it's a surety that we have this, deeper knowledge that we're in fellowship with him. Verse 4, he that saith, I know him, again, it's going back, remember, if we say this, so so he says, he, the Christian that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So the Christian that's claiming they have this close fellowship of knowing him, um, is not telling the truth. 
Again, so we're talking about the difference between what a Christian is saying, what they're claiming, and what is reality. Verse 5, but whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. And again, Jerry was teaching this in Sunday school too, because a lot of people think of the word perfect. But this has to do from the Greek word, the goal. The goal of God's love is reached. There's the idea of perfected here. Verse 6, he that says he abides in him. Now, I want you to keep, oh, I didn't read the rest of verse 5, sorry. Hereby know we that we are in him. Keep that phrase, in him, that is, in Jesus the Christ, in mind. And then the next verse, which talks about abides, because we're going to look at a few scriptures about that. So this is Christians in him, verse 6. He that saith he abides in him ought himself also to walk, that is, live even as he walked. Speaking of how Jesus lived, so we should live the same. All right, so keeping your place in 1 John again, um, if you'll turn with me back to John chapter 15. We won't do the whole chapter, but just to get the gist of the idea here. John chapter 15. John 15. We'll start in verse 1. John 15, 1, I am the true vine, as Jesus speaking. He said he's the true vine. My father is the husbandman. You know, the person, sort of referring to the person who takes care of the grapevine. Verse 2, every branch in me, Jesus says, that bears not fruit, he takes away. All right, now there's, I've heard people talk about how this could be translated differently, but um, the idea I was thinking about is Paul writes in Romans, as we studied in, when I was teaching the last Sunday school lesson, about how the Jews lost the opportunity to rule and reign in the coming kingdom because they rejected Jesus as the Christ, and they were the natural branches that were broken off. And, and Paul was warning us that as believers, if they were the natural branches and we're the wild branches grafted in, how much more it is that we might be broken off. It's not meaning losing salvation, but not getting to rule and reign. So going on, and every branch that bears fruit, he purges it. This is like the pruning that the gardener does. That it may bring forth more fruit. Verse 3. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Now, here we talked about the I about in me or abide in me. Here it is. Abide in me, Jesus says. So this is to Christians, not lost people telling them how to get saved. This is for us. He says, abide in me and I in you. Now, he's already in us, right? He's in us, and he's, he says he'll never leave us or forsake us. So Jesus isn't leaving us, but we don't always abide in him. The two have to happen for there to be fellowship, that a Christian has fellowship with the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. So He's in us, but we have to abide in Him to produce fruit. Verse 5, I, He says again, am the vine, ye are the branches. He's emphasizing to us our place. The same that Paul did in Romans when we were studying about that. All 
right? He's the vine, we're the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. Why? Because this Christian is in fellowship with him. It says, for without me, ye can do nothing. The Christian not abiding in him, the Christian not in fellowship with God, can produce no fruit whatsoever. Nothing displeasing to God. They may be very active. They may be in church at all the church services. They may be doing lots of things. But if they're all done out of self-will, which the Bible calls self-righteousness, they're getting all their rewards here, and none of it counts for good when they get to the judgment seat. All right, if you'll come back with me to 1 John. 1 John, still in chapter 2. Okay, and that gets us through verse 6. Now verse 7. Brethren, (laughs) I was in a a church once uh, in Florida, and the preacher decided to use this. It wasn't a Baptist church. I was doing the music in a church called the Church of the Brethren. But the preacher was sort of a little liberal, and he was wanting to use a... Uh, Bible translation that didn't have any gender was no not gender specific. So in other words, you know, brethren wouldn't would not include the cistern or the sisters. That's just the way the language is. And of course, when we talk about brothers, it means brothers and sisters in Christ. So just in case you're worried that the sisters are not included, brothers, I write no new commandment to you. But an old commandment, which ye have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. So nothing is new. He says, you've heard it. Verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. He that says he is in the light, we're going back to what we saw in chapter 1. Remember, that's the way it started out. The Christian who claims... He's in the light, but walking in the darkness. So he says, he that says he's in the light and hates his brother. So now it's getting specific. It's mentioning a specific thing. Remember he said that if we're in fellowship, the first thing he said is we're in fellowship with one another. So this is being out of fellowship with a a brother or sister in Christ. The, The phrase, hate your brother. Something's wrong. There's no fellowship here. He that says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. It's not saying they're lost. This is a Christian. They're not in fellowship with some particular member of the body of Christ. They're hating their brother or sister in Christ. Verse 10. He that loves his brother, and here's this word abides, abides in the light. So we, we talk about, we just read in John, abides, when Jesus said, abide in me, who is he? He's the light. It's all connected. It's all through John chapter 1, the light of the world. He's the light. So, remember in him there's no darkness at all. So, he that loves his brother, the Christian who's loving in fellowship with his brother and sisters in Christ, abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Now, that could be misinterpreted, because the person would say, well, are you saying that person, is it saying that that Christian's perfect? Uh, no, but there's, I think the gist is not causing offense, and the idea of the word stumbling here, um, which happens when there's not fellowship going on. Verse 11. But he that hates his brother, going to, back to that side again, 
is in darkness and walks in darkness. Again, living in, this is a Christian. They're not walking in the light. They're walking in darkness. They're living in darkness. They're a carnal Christian. And knows not, here's the old English word, whither, whither. Um, just a quick lesson, lesson on the old English words. Um, and I'm sure you know this, but there's whither and thither and hither. When it has those words, we use the word to before them. So whither is to where, thither is to there, and hither is uh, to, uh, which one did I say, to here? To here, to there, and to where. All right? So the same thing with hence, thence, and whence. You put the preposition from in front. From where, from here, from there. In English now, we don't make a distinction between the two. We just add the preposition if we want to. So this means to where. So it says, going backing up, and knows not, the Christian who's walking in darkness, knows not to where he goes. In other words, he doesn't know where he's going. You know what that makes me think of? Um, There are a lot of Christians who don't know about the coming kingdom. They don't know what the hope is, because that is the hope that we'll hear him at the judgment seat of Christ say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and we get to enter into the joy of the Lord, that is to rule and reign, to share in his glory in the kingdom. So that Christian, they're walking in darkness. They don't know where they're going. They don't, they don't know. In most cases, they probably don't know about the kingdom or they're just ignoring it. Let me read a little more and then we'll, we'll look at another scripture. Because that darkness has blinded his eyes. So this Christian can't see that. They're walking in darkness and they can't see where they're going. All right, so if you hold your place in 1 John, let's look at 2 Peter. So we turn back just a little bit further in the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1. Oh, I said back, sorry. The other way, just one, going back one book. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1. And to save time, we'll just do a few verses starting at verse 5. I'm not going to go through this in depth and talk about each word because that, again, would be another message. But in verse 5, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, this is telling us to do as Christians, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity, For if these things, the list of those things we just read, be in you, that's in us as believers, and abound, that means they're increasing, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to read the next verse in a second, but notice it's talking about producing fruit again that we talked about in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Talking about producing fruit. All right, verse 9. But he, that is the Christian who lacks these things, is what? Blind. We just read that about the blindness. They're blind because they can't see where they're going. So they're blind and cannot see afar off. You need to be able to see afar off to to know where you're going, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. All right, now if you'll turn with me back to Psalms. 
Psalms 119, the 119th Psalm. We'll look at one verse. I think a lot of people have this verse memorized. Um, Back when Amy Grant was doing Christian music, she made this into a song. She just took the words from the Bible and made a tune. You might know the tune. Psalm 119, verse 105. Psalm 119. Verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, the reason I went here, remember this Christian is blind and they can't see afar off. There's some blindness occurring. This is talking about two different things in this verse about seeing. The first one is a lamp unto my feet. What I think this represents, because the feet are used in walking, and walking is representative of living. So it's talking about how to live the Christian life. The Word of God shows us what I call practical Christianity, what God expects from us, what he wants us to do, how to live, and what is he's not pleased with. So thy word is a lamp unto my feet. We first need that lamp shining to see where we're walking. You know, if, you're, if you've ever been hiking and it gets dark and you don't have a flashlight and your eyes start to adjust, but there's a point where if you're in the woods or forest, if you've ever experienced this, it's really hard to tell if there's a root or something that's going to cause you to trip. I've had it happen, so I know it can, it's possible. So um, it just you need to be able to see where your feet are and where you're taking your steps. So as Christians... We need the word to tell us how to live the Christian life. Now, the second part, and a light unto my path. So the path is on down ahead. So as Christians, we need to know where we're going. We need to know the object is to get into the kingdom to rule and reign. So keeping all that in mind, if you'll come back to 1 John. 1 John, we're still in chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we did verse 11. Now, the next three verses, 12, 13, and 14, I just want to point out a little few differences before we go. You'll see the mention in the King James as little children, then it says fathers, and it says young men. And then it does the same three again. In the first group, it's um, I write to you. So it's talking about I'm writing this now to you. In the second group, the first one for the little children, it says the same tense, Right, But for the fathers and the young men, it says, uh, in the Young's literal tr- uh, translation, it mentions, I think more closely to the Greek, did write. So in other words, it was an action that he already did. He wrote something before to them. And I'll explain these three different groups in a moment, but I just wanted to point that out. And the only reason I mention that in Greek, why, while Mark Summers in the two Sunday school lessons was pointing out the beauty of the Hebrew language, which is not only pictorial, but having to do with numbers, too, the subject of num- numerology. The, in Greek, it's interesting because it's a, what I like to think of as a perfect language. In English, there are often things that are amb- ambiguous, things that we're not quite sure of, what they could mean different things. So I'll just give an example. Um, for instance, and those of you that know grammar, this will mean something, and if not, don't worry about it. But anyway, so... <laughs> I'm talking about English grammar to start with. Just because we know to speak English, it's funny. Grammar is something completely different. So you can look at a Greek word, for instance, a Greek verb, and you can know if it's first person, second person, third person. It's, you know, I, you, he, she, or it. Singular or plural. 
that's all part of that one word. You can tell by looking at the word what it is. And by the way, besides in Greek, besides singular and plural, there's also duo. So there's they have a they have a plural for just two. And I'll give you an example. In the when we talk about at Christmas time, and we always talk about the three wise men who came much later, not not at this, when Jesus was a little baby, but anyway, won't get on that subject. All right. So we talk about the three wise. The Bible doesn't give the number. It just says magi, which means wise men, but it's plural, which means three or more. We traditionally say there are three because there were three gifts, you know, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There could have been more than three. So I don't think it matters if if God wanted us to know the exact number. He would have just used the number. But I just point that out because had it been two, there would have been duo. So we know if it's first, second, and third person, singular, duo, or plural. We also know, um, you know, what the... What in the verb, whether it's um, present tense, past tense, and perfect, you know, all the different tenses, future tense, it's all known from looking at that word. It's perfect. Now, I'll give you an example in English. If I said, I am standing, okay, well, most of you are probably thinking somewhere right away. I'm actually at the pulpit here and I'm standing. Well, but you could say that same sentence in English and mean something else. I could be sitting over there. And while I'm saying I am standing, be getting up. That's a different meaning entirely because I'm in the process of getting up as opposed to I'm in the position of standing. And Greek doesn't have that ambiguity. So that's the point I'm making. A Greek is exact. So not that you have to know Greek to get all that, but I just wanted to point that out. So here we are in 12, 13, and 14. So I want to break these groups up. Verse 12. I write to you little children. We always... Already saw this as an endearment kind of thing, but in the idea of what it looks like, he's referring to are the newborn Christians, those who have just recently believed. It doesn't matter what age they are. You could be 30 years old and just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You could be 70. That doesn't matter. The object is you're a newborn Christian. He said, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. You know, when you're a new Christian, that's about all you know. The other stuff you start to learn, hopefully, as Christians. Although in a lot of churches, unfortunately, they aren't being lured. The emphasis on getting someone to believe, and then nothing else happens. And then you wonder why the person eventually gets upset about something and leaves church and doesn't go to church anywhere anymore. It's because they didn't grow. They didn't get grounded in the Word. All right? Verse 13. I write to you fathers... So, not meaning those who have fathered children in the sense literally, but I think he's referring to those who are spiritually mature. And again, we talked about in the Greek, we don't need to get hung up and think this is not including women. This has nothing to do with the gender. Because ye have known him, so this talking about there's some past experience here, ye have known him that is from the beginning. Now he says, I write to you young men, again, not to include, not include any of the women, but the young men here referring to the, spiritually speaking, those in between. They're, they're not spiritually mature. They're in the process of growing. They're learning, but they're not newborn Christians. So in the process. So young people, because ye have overcome the wicked one, I write to you again. Now this is the second group. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have, and now it switches to have written or did write. It means 
in the past. To you fathers, because if they're newborn Christians, he wouldn't have written to them in the past if they just got saved. Does that make sense? Okay, so here, I've written to you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because ye are strong and the word of God abides in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. So these are very um, encouraging things to people. Paul did this often in his writings too and encouraging. Verse 15. I think we have time. Yes, a few more minutes. Love not the world. Um, You know, there's a lot of things in this world and it doesn't mean you can't enjoy things in this world. They're God-created beautiful world, so I think trees are beautiful to look at. There's a lot of nice things in the world to enjoy. Some people like to get out on the water. I like to go on cruises. There's different things that people like to enjoy in the world, but this is something specific. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. This idea of things that are... um, Worldly as opposed to being spiritual. So that, I think, is the thing he's referring to. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, as believers, this is referring to a carnal Christian. This is a Christian who is not in fellowship with God, and there's no interest in the Word. Um, I know in a lot of places, we, we're blessed here in this area of the country where we live, uh, but I think mainly because of the ministry of Brother Wilson at Daytona Heights years ago, that there are more people who understand the deeper truths in this area than a lot of places. You can go to a lot of places in the country, and it's hard to find a church like this. And those of you who have visited other places know what I'm talking about. There's hard, it's hard to find a place. We just happen to have a few more in this area, I think, because of that. So there are a lot of carnal Christians and their interest is in, their interest is in the world. It's not in the things of God. Verse sixteen: For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Remember, pride. We in the Old Testament we're told it's a thing that God hates most. Here we see the different things: the lust, the desires, you know, the things that would please us, both the flesh and things we see and we want them. And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Those things aren't spiritual. They're not spiritual. Verse 17. And the world, here's something interesting about this world. The world passes away, and the lust thereof, the word thereof in English now we put I-T apostrophe S, uh, not apostrophe, sorry, without the apostrophe, and it's Lust. In other words, you know, the world passes away and it's the things that are desired from it. But he that does the will of God abides. Now, we read the word forever, but again, that's for the age, literally, in, in the Greek. So, talking about abiding in him, and then if we're fellowship, we hear him well, say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then we can abide in the age. If we're faithful as Christians, if we're doing his will, if we're in fellowship with him. Okay. I think that's the time I'm supposed to stop. So, Lord willing, we'll pick up here the next time I have opportunity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful today again for your word. We thank you for reminding us that as believers...
there's a difference between what we might say and what we're doing. We're thankful that you have given us an opportunity to get right with you, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know that's something that happens on a daily basis because we continue to be displeasing, whether it's sins of commission or sins of omission, things that we should have done and didn't do. Father, whatever it is that you convict us of, we pray that we would admit it to you and get right with you and be in fellowship with one another so that we can be in fellowship with you and be pleasing to you and hear at that day at the judgment seat, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. Father, this is our prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.